Hello, brothers, sisters, and friends, and welcome to You Are the Current Resident Podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan, and sitting next to me, as always, is our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how are you doing this week? Hey, Eddie, doing great. Excited to be back on the podcast, and we've got an interesting topic today, I think, so let's get going. Great. I'm going to start things off a little bit different this week, and then we're going to ask, do the little bit of an Ask the Mailbag segment early. This is from Ed, from the guy sitting next to you, and he wants to know, do we have any contract updates? Yeah, so we are uh, continue to be really engaged in bargaining pretty much constantly. And I, I know as I speak to our members and you know fully understand that, look, as it is for me, it's the most important thing we do as a union. So there's a lot of interest and in, I'd even describe it as impatience because I'm impatient myself. But we continue to work at it. We've got a lot of stuff that's already done in terms of things that'll likely appear in an agreement, regardless of whether that agreement is reached through negotiation or through interest arbitration. The uh, issues that remain, there's a handful of um, big non-economic issues, let's call them, that we're still working on, working through language and things like that. And then, of course, the economic piece, which includes things obviously like our, our pay and, and that type stuff, but there, there's it's a lot more complicated than just how big is our race going to be. So there's a lot of structural things we're working on. I think a lot of our listeners are aware that we currently have two pay tables, a table one and a table two. Table one's been around a long time. Table two came about with the uh, DOS award that we got in 2013. And one of our big priorities, it's no secret, is to uh, have a single pay table that is closer, at least more reflective of the salary numbers that we see in table one. But beyond just, you know, what starting pay is and what pay is at every step, there's a lot of negotiation around the structure of that, you know, what it looks like in terms of the number of steps and the waiting periods between steps. And we've made a lot of progress uh, in the last few weeks in terms of having a good, clear understanding of where the Postal Service is currently, where we are, and, and you know, I think they have a clear understanding of where we feel like we need to go in order to achieve an agreement that rewards our members and, you know, is fair given all the circumstances that I know we've talked about on previous episodes, but just to kind of briefly cover those. There's a lot of things that have an impact on our agreement. There's obviously the uh, comparability standard in the law, what those that do similar work as us in the private sector, how they're compensated. We sometimes differ in our view of who that comparison you know, should be, but there's also an impact when we just look at the Postal Service's finances, obviously, which are improved. They're not where we need to be. There's things that on last week's episode we talked about a lot legislatively and some things with the White House that we still need to do, but they certainly are in an improved financial position. And then there's just simply when you look in the world around us, there's no question that the state of the economy, the state of wages in this country are factors that help create the environment in which we bargain and and have a direct impact on what we're able to achieve. So when you consider all those things, the the one thing that I can express to our members that, that we are seeking pretty significant economic increases in terms of pay and the structure of pay and looking at things like the structure of our workforce and the non-career classification, you know, in its current form as uh, we believe doesn't serve our craft anymore. So that's all subject to negotiation. But as far as process, 
where we are right now is we continue to be engaged. Our talks continue to be productive. We will likely move very soon to the next step in the process, which is choosing an arbitrator and scheduling our interest arbitration hearings. Now, that said, the fact that that we go ahead and schedule arbitration, and you'll see information about that, of course, on the website, hear about it on this podcast and in the magazine, things like that is not an indication that we stop negotiating. As long as there is opportunity for us, we believe, to reach a tentative agreement that is fair and rewards our members, then we'll continue to negotiate. But we're at a point now where, you know, moving to that next step in the process is where we believe we need to go. As far as interest arbitration itself, this often comes up. Um, when we say we're going to move to that step in the process, I just want to be clear and be sure, you know, all the listeners understand we are fully prepared to go there. I mean, we have been working on this for in earnest for over a year and, and honestly, in some ways, in terms of early preparation prior to that. So we feel like we have a very strong case and we feel very confident in our ability, whether it's through negotiation or utilizing that interest arbitration process, that we will be in a place to uh, achieve an agreement that is very fair and, and rewards our members considering all those factors that I talked about before. So, you know, I don't tell people to be patient because I'm not patient, um, but it's it's just a simple fact. If you look at the history of our collective bargaining, these things take time. And I completely understand, you know, the frustration on uh, a lot of people's, uh, that people express regarding why does it take this long? And it's just, if we wanted to get an agreement early, we could have done that. <laughs> but we would have not gotten an agreement that, that we believe, you know, gets the maximum benefit for the members of the NELC, which ultimately is our goal. So we'll continue to talk about that here on the podcast when uh, we move to that next step. As I said, we will pretty soon of choosing an arbitrator. We'll put some information out and, and likely we'll have not just the fact that we're moving to interest arbitration, but we'll likely give at least some detail in terms of the issues that are still on the table where we've not been able to reach agreement that uh, we would foresee putting in front of the arbitrator. So I want to just express my appreciation to, you know, the members that, uh, you know, we hear from all the time as I travel around the country, the people that write things, the people that send in questions to this podcast, all of that stuff, suggestions and, and expressing opinions from our members is really helpful in combination with our official bargaining positions. I know we've talked about on the podcast before that come from our convention to, you know, give us the sort of real life, real time feedback in terms of the priorities for our members that, that we need to address. So we continue working hard. Got a lot of folks here that are uh, spending day and night working on this stuff, and, and we'll continue to do that. And as I said, whether it's through agreement, which is always our preference, but if we're not able to get to where we think we need to be, then we won't hesitate to use that interest arbitration process. But either way, we feel really good about the opportunity we have to achieve a, a great collective bargaining agreement that'll reward our members and address some of the major issues that we see out there. Terrific. Last episode, we talked about the government shutdown. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah, fortunately, um, folks in Congress in the House and uh, on the Senate side, and then ultimately the White House, were able kind of at the midnight hour to come to an agreement on Saturday. They agreed on a continuing resolution to fund the government for, I believe it was 45 days. That was passed by the House and then the Senate on Saturday and then the president signed that continuing resolution into law. So there's nothing as far as the terms of the agreement that really are 
more than kind of just moving forward business as usual. There's nothing there that negatively impacts us or negatively impacts the Postal Service or, or negatively impacts any of our brothers and sisters in the larger federal employee community. I know we talked about, you know, the potential impact on those folks on the last episode. So it's a kind of a kick the can down the road a little bit, which is we all know the Congress is pretty good at doing. At this point, it kind of remains to be seen what will happen, you know, a few weeks from now when this continuing resolution expires. But I can assure you that we will remain uh, engaged and any attempts to insert any kind of provisions into whatever type deal we have at that point that would affect us and affect our members or, you know, even affect our brothers and sisters in the larger labor movement, we will utilize every bit of our muscle, so to speak, to keep that stuff from happening. But we're optimistic that due to a lot of the work we've done over the years and the relationships we've built with people in both parties that are in leadership positions that are largely responsible for crafting, you know, this kind of legislation, that um, that won't be an issue. But hopefully, for the sake of a lot of people around the country, it won't come down to the midnight hour next time. But we'll definitely keep everyone up to date on what we see happening with that. So where were you this week? Yeah, so last week uh, I had the opportunity to go out to Illinois and uh, our members in Region 3 had their uh, annual regional training and, and rap session. Those folks do a great job with training people on a variety of different topics and on Friday, I believe it was, I had the opportunity to be there with them and speak to them for a few hours Friday morning and, you know, share a lot of stuff that's going on, kind of similar, honestly, to a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast. And, you know, as always, hearing from our members and having the opportunity to answer their questions is one of my favorite things to do. And uh, so I'm real happy and, and proud of the people there in Region 3 that uh, did a wonderful job. And then uh, over the weekend, I had a chance to make a quick trip out to Denver and uh, be with the retirees from Branch 47 in Denver. They had a retiree brunch on Sunday and great group of retirees there. Anybody that's from that area, you're probably familiar with the uh, kind of reputation, let's say, that the retirees in Denver have. I, I say that in a very positive way, but I always enjoy being at events that our branches hold for our retirees. They have a very special place with me because I'm the son of a retired letter carrier. So I've learned that I share an experience almost everywhere I go that when I was a real young branch president in my mid-20s, I was, you know, speaking and giving what I thought was a riveting speech. And I looked down at that retired letter carrier that was my dad, and he gave me the universal signal to cut it off. So I try my best to, uh, you know, share with them information that's that's impactful to retirees, but more than anything, just appreciate our retirees for, you know, not just their service to, the, you know, our customers over the years, and um, but also the really special and kind of unique place that retirees hold in our union. Most unions' retirees are not members, and the unions that do have retirees as members, they're usually pretty limited in terms of what they have the ability to do, and our union is nothing like that. You know, we have a large percentage of our members are retirees and, you know, not just what they did while they were active members, but what they've done as retired members are are one of the strengths of our union. So always good to be with a group of retirees and thoroughly enjoyed that. And where are you headed out this week? Yeah, we um, have a couple of events happening, uh, actually multiple events happening over Columbus Day weekend. First, we continue to have events around the country. We've talked about a lot here. We're calling them Enough is Enough rallies, where we go into communities and get our local folks there and 
community leaders and other labor folks and members of Congress and those type people in uh, different communities together and get the local media there and just try to get the word out about the dangers that we experience on the street, the alarming increase we've seen in robberies and the crime against our members. And by the time you listen to this, we will have had an event in Branch 1100 in Compton, California, headed out there, excited to be there, got a great group lined up, got a lot of a lot of media there that'll provide some coverage, because ultimately that's the reason we do these, is to uh, help get the word out and you know, educate the public. And then on the weekend, which I suppose is, as you're listening to this, it is Columbus Day uh, weekend or Indigenous Peoples Day weekend. Several of our regions uh, have their regional training. So Region 9 down in uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, I'll have the had a chance to be with them. And then Region 6 always does this weekend. They're up in Michigan this year in Kalamazoo, so I'll be there with them. And Region 10 is down, way down in South Texas. Unfortunately, I, because of going to those other places, just physically can't get there. So Executive Vice President Paul Barner will be there with them. So it's a important weekend with a lot of stuff happening around the country that uh, maybe most importantly, the training of the folks that are have taken on that responsibility to represent letter carriers in whatever way they do. Those annual trainings that our regions do, you know, tend to be really crucial in terms of, you know, people's education level and ultimately contributes greatly to the the ability we have to represent our members. So excited about everything we have going on this weekend. And by the time you hear this, my Phillies of what will have played in the playoffs, they might be out by the time this comes out. So Keep your fingers crossed for my fills, if you would. My uh, fingers are not crossed, Eddie. A Braves-Phillies uh, series would be nice for us. And the Eagles are undefeated, so that's good. I don't think you guys want to get into football talk. No, not, not today. No, let's wait a year or two for that. That's it. At least we're not the Giants. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Speaking of the Giants, we have a Giants fan on the podcast yeah, today. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Today we're going to be talking about the Mutual Benefit Association, or MBA. And uh, we have the, the director of the Mutual Benefit Association here today, Jim Yates, Brian, do you want to talk about Jim? Yeah, so th- this is fun to talk about. Jim, as you said, is the director of life insurance for the NALC. Uh, he's been in that position, I guess, about five years or so now. Jim and I have worked together for a long time, you know, going all the way back to we were letter care staffers here at headquarters working on city delivery stuff. And, um, you know, really since then have worked on all sorts of things. And uh, Jim does other stuff besides just MBA, too. But for the purposes of today, it's fun for us to be able to focus on the Mutual Benefit Association. I think a lot of our members, obviously, if they have a policy that we offer or are aware, but that's probably, particularly among our newer members, you know, maybe not as much awareness out there. But the Mutual Benefit Association is a life insurance company. It's a fraternal organization that is owned by the NALC. It is a company that exists solely for the purpose of offering life insurance and other insurance policies to NALC members. You know, so every single policy we have, everything that we do there in terms of the way we operate is 100% designed to serve our members. So as we make life plans and kind of look around at things like our retirement benefits and planning longer term for our families. Really hope that everyone listening, and certainly by the end of, end of this podcast, that you uh, 
we'll take a look at the NBA, and uh, I think you'll see there that we have a lot of great products. So excited to get into a lot of different things with Jim. We'll talk about, about him a little bit and talk about the history of the Mutual Benefit Association. It has kind of an interesting history in terms of the way it started and what its original purpose was. And, and then, of course, we'll get into some of the specific products that uh, there's something out there for everybody, you know, whether you're a um, new letter carrier, you're a CCA, or, or you've been converted, you know, whatever point you're at in your career and, and in your life, then uh, I, I think we've got a plan that would be beneficial to you. So excited to dig into some of that stuff and we'll get all the way into at the end exactly, you know, if you want to buy a policy and you find something that you think there think would be good for you, exactly how you do that. So we'll try to do a little bit of A to Z with, uh, with the NBA today. And just a few words about Jim Yates. He's a great union man and a great friend. Uh, you know, when I first started working down here, he kind of took me under his wing, the kind of way when, you know, your first couple of days in the workroom floor, you know, the steward comes over and kind of shows you the ropes in that same kind of way. Jim's doing that at the NALC level. Yeah, you're exactly right. And Jim's done a lot of different stuff for the union and uh, has done a really great job as, you know, to no one surprise with MBA. Here's my conversation with NALC Director of Life Insurance, Jim Yates. So we're happy to have uh, NALC Director of Life Insurance, Jim Yates, on the podcast today. Jim, thanks for taking some time to join us. It's great to be here. So let's start before we get into the NBA, which is primarily why we're here. And uh, I talked about a little bit in the intro to this podcast, but let's start with kind of your history with with NALC. I I mentioned in the intro, you and I have worked together for a long time now, but why don't you give our listeners that may or may not know you or or know your history, just you and I are both second generation letter carriers and uh, maybe just give them some of your history, maybe a little bit about your family and then what you've done for the union over the years. Okay. Well, like you said, I am a second-generation letter carrier. I started my postal career in October of 1994, so I just crossed into my 30th year with the Postal Service. My father was a letter carrier, was also active NALC member. He was uh, a national officer for a short period of time, for about seven years. My mom was a postal clerk for a short period of time. My sister currently is a letter carrier. I had four uncles who were letter carriers, so I really did come from a postal family. When I first started with the Postal Service. I jumped right into being active in the NALC, became an alternate steward almost immediately. I worked my way up in Branch 6000, holding various jobs for the branch, trustee, safety officer, health benefits rep, MBA rep up there. I did various other things. I did route adjustments. I was a a route adjustment team member for IRAP and MIRAP, and then I became the district lead during the JRAP processes, then doing arbitrations as well during that time. Uh, I was DRT trained. I never actually sat full time on the DRT, but did do some backup work for the DRT as well. Yeah. And then uh, you and I worked together. You came here as a letter care staffer and uh, I guess have You've done a lot of stuff since you've been here at headquarters, too. Yeah, yeah, it's been quite a ride. I started coming down here, I guess, in 2011, kind of, you can call me, I don't know if you wanted to call me a TE at the time, or uh, I wasn't on staff uh, those first couple of years, but I would do various projects for for Lou, who was director of city delivery at the time, for a couple of years till I finally got hired on staff in 2013. And I worked out of the Region 15 office for a year before I moved down to D.C. permanently in 2014. 
Yeah, I remember I was a letter carrier staffer and uh, when Lou Trass, our uh, now retired vice president, was director of city delivery when Jim started coming in to help us out. And that was like a godsend for me. <laughs> needed all the needed all the help I could get. So you uh, were first elected to be director of life insurance in 2018, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah, so you've been in that position now for about five years. So let's get into uh, the Mutual Benefit Association. And as I said in the intro, I talked about, you know, just what it is. It's NELC's life insurance company that exists you know, solely to serve our members. And I think it's got a very interesting history, just how it began, you know, in, in a, I guess, pretty looking back, a pretty simplistic form and, you know, evolved over the years into what it is today. So why don't you just give our listeners some history, how it started and and kind of what's happened over the years to lead us up to MBA as we know it here in 2023. Okay. So the MBA came about through a resolution from the NALC membership at its second national convention held in Detroit in 1892. A lot of labor organizations back then were putting into place organizations such as the MBA because there were no safety nets for their members. The MBA predates FEGLI, which is the you know federal group life insurance. It predates the federal health benefits programs. It predates CSRS, the Civil Service Retirement System, and FERS, which came after CSRS. So we were put in place so our members could purchase insurance if they were to get sick, if they were to get injured, so they would have some money coming in because those social safety nets just did not exist back in the early 1800s. So I believe it was Wilmont Dunn was the first collector. It wasn't called director of life insurance back in the day. He was called the the national collector because he was there to collect the money because there was no dues check off. There was none of this electronic money moving around the way we do it today. So we had to have somebody collect all that money. So we were set up in the state of Tennessee. That's where he was from. And that's where we are organized in the state of Tennessee. That's where we're chartered. So we're we're governed by this state of Tennessee Division of Commerce and Insurance, Department of Commerce and Insurance. And they regulate us uh, pretty heavily like any other insurance company. What makes us a little different is that we are a fraternal so we, we're not as stringent on, in certain areas that a, uh, like a prudential uh, would be, but we are still have to fall under all the state laws. Yeah, it kind of leads to my next question. You know, you're talking about the state of Tennessee and among life insurance companies, especially today, MBA is very unique in terms of our status as what they call a fraternal organization. Maybe just dig in a little bit there and tell our listeners how MBA is different than, you know, just the normal life insurance company they may see if they go online and look for a quote for some type of product or or the big ones that as people are familiar with the names of these giant insurance companies around the country. Like what makes MBA different? What makes MBA different is basically that we are a fraternal. We only sell our products to letter carriers and their families. You have to be a member of the NELC to purchase our products. We just can't sell to anybody off the street. You have to be a member. And if you become a member of the NELC and you purchase a product and you later retire and you don't retain your membership or you resign, you can keep that policy as long as you purchased it while you are a member of the NELC. 
that's one of the differences. Another difference is we're not for profit. Everything we do is for the betterment of our membership, the betterment of our letter carriers to help them. Every dollar we take in goes back into the policies. It does not, uh, we're not funding shareholders or paying salesmen or, you know, all that money that comes in goes back into the policies. So let's get into it. I think hopefully those of you that are listening, if if you didn't already, you now have some interest in the type of products and, and policies that we offer. And at the most basic level, I think as we'll talk about, there's, you know, some pretty well-known kind of traditional types of life insurance policies that we'll get into. But I want to start with one that is, I think, something that a lot of folks, you know, may not even know that we offer, but also may have a tremendous interest in. And uh, let's first talk about the disability policy that we have. So why don't you uh, just explain to us kind of how that works and why it may be of interest you know, to some of our members out there to look into and potentially purchase the disability policy? Well, the disability policy is something that, that I brought back after I took over as a director of life insurance. Uh, disability insurance is something that letter carriers don't have through their states. Most employees of any organization would have disability through their state. The disability policies are run by the different 50 different states. The employer pays into that disability policy for the employee. Being federal employees as postal workers, we do not get that. So if you got hurt off the job and you ran out of sick leave, you would have no income coming in. If you use up all your leave and you're hurt off the job, you're not going to be covered by OWCP, so you don't have, and you're not covered by your state's run disability policy, so you'd have to purchase private insurance, and that's what this is. We brought this back to fill that gap. There are a few different ways somebody could take this out. There are a few different options depending upon what your price point is, how much you want to spend. You can take out a $650 per month benefit, a $1,350 per month benefit, or a $2,000 per month benefit. And then you can either do a six-month benefit period or a 12-month benefit period. And your premium is going to be determined on your age when you take this out. And once you take this policy out, as long as you continue to pay premiums, your premium will not increase uh, for the life of the policy. And this policy would automatically renew every year up to the age of 65. On the policy anniversary date uh, after your 65th birthday, this policy would cancel. But you can keep it up to that point. Like I said, even if you're not working for the USPS anymore, as long as you're employed, you, you obviously you cannot be fully disabled from a job if you don't have a job. So as long as you maintain employment, you can keep this policy if you took it out while you're an active NALC letter carrier. This policy, though, is not offered to family members of letter carriers. I want to make that clear that you cannot take this out for your spouse. This is only for the active carrier. This is the a policy that we it's just underwritten that way, and that's the way we're trying to keep the cost down for the active carriers. That's one thing that is common throughout, you know, all of the different products that we offer is a big part of the equation is certainly to offer something, as you mentioned, like the disability policy where our members through, you know, what we have benefits-wise through the Postal Service and the, therefore the federal government to be sure that we offer 
them to the extent we possibly can the ability to purchase those type products, but also to do it at the most affordable cost that we can. And I think it's a really good example about this. The disability policy, it's available to CCAs too, correct? Yes, it is available to CCAs. All of our policies are available to all NALC members. And one thing I should mention about the disability policy, the payments you get if you have a claim, it's not considered income. So it's not taxed. And you can claim the disability benefits, even if you got hurt on the job and are collecting OWCP at the same time. You just have to be completely out of work and you can collect on these benefits. Okay, let's move into the life insurance policies that we offer. And, you know, I I just want to say up front, there's a lot of, of people that sometimes have strong opinions about different types of policies. They may particularly believe in a certain type of policy. There's a a good idea for for them or or for anyone or another type of policy is not. I think just to make the point up front that we try to offer a very wide range of policies that to the extent we possibly can could potentially benefit our members regardless of, of what their situation is. In other words, give them an option that is very suitable to their individual need. So just for the listeners out there, you know, as I said, a lot of people have strong opinions about this. And I don't know that we're on this particular podcast in the business of trying to sell you any particular policy just to make you aware of what's available out there. And of course, you could dig a little further into it. And the folks at MBAs we'll talk about here in a little bit are more than willing to help with anything there. So why don't we, Jim, just start with uh, maybe let you on a kind of basic level run through all the different types of life insurance policies that we offer and you know maybe cover not just the different types of policies, but who those policies are available to, the members, their family, et cetera. Okay, all the life insurance policies that we offer are available to the letter carrier and their families, their spouse, their children, their grandchildren, even their parents, if you wanted to get a policy for your parents. We will cover any one individual life for up to $100,000. We have both term and whole life policies, and we have four of each type. The basic difference between a term and a whole life policy is a term policy only covers you for the term that you signed up for. And they don't build any cash value and they re-rate at certain points in time depending upon how many years of a term you selected when you took the policy out. On the other hand, a whole life policy does build a cash value over time, which you can borrow against or you could cancel a policy and pull your cash value out if you needed that money. They are generally more expensive, but their premiums never change. They don't re-rate in the same way that a term life policy would re-rate when you hit a certain period of time. Now, I know many letter carriers have FEGLI, the Federal Group Life Insurance That is a term policy. So you hit certain five-year increments and you will notice your FEGLI deduction goes up because your rates increased at these specific times. Uh, And FEGLI can get very expensive the older you get and can get really expensive and you can end up with reduced coverage depending upon what you choose in retirement. I generally don't try to push anything on anybody, but If the younger you are, if you can get into a whole life policy, if you can afford it, if you want it, I would think that's definitely the best way to go. But like you said, everybody's got different opinions. Everybody has different insurance needs and insurance needs change over time. 
you're getting close to retirement, you may not need as much insurance. Your house might be paid off. Your kid's college might be paid. You just may not need to leave as much money behind. Your insurance needs will change over time, so you can make different determinations based on that. With different types of policies, some of them, I think, have uh, cash value associated with them. You want to get into that a little bit? Yeah. So the whole life policies will build the cash value. It's, it'll be low in the beginning, but the longer you hold on to that policy, the policy will build that cash value. As that cash value builds up, like I mentioned, you can borrow against it. You would pay, end up paying yourself back at a percentage, or if you don't pay yourself back, you could end up with just a reduced uh, face value on the policy over time. All right, so let's talk about uh, ultimately maybe the most important thing for most people, and that's the cost of the policies and you know the premiums that, that people would have to pay that are associated with them. And you mentioned on a couple of the different products, but just if there's any one in particular you want to mention, maybe what some I know particular types of, of products we offer might be a little more affordable than others and based on the benefits. So let's talk about the cost and uh, let's maybe start with just how generally we try to make them as affordable as possible. And then, you know, anything specific that uh, you think would be worth mentioning about the price that our members would pay should they choose to take out a policy. Okay. Well, the cost on the policies is going to differ depending upon the policy you take out. Term life policies are going to be cheaper and the shorter the term, it depends on your age and the term you take out and how much money you take out. If you go on our website, nelc.org backslash MBA, you could pull up the brochures and the brochures, all the brochures have a chart based on age and how much coverage you want. And you could see how, the, how, how it changes. We have four different term policies. We have a five-year term, which is going to re-rate on every fifth year. So it'll escalate each time as you get older. We also have a 10-year term policy, works the same way. Uh, Every 10 years, it will re-rate. And then we have a 20-year term. That one is the same thing. After 20 years, you have to reapply and you you would take out another, uh, another term for 20 years if you wanted to. And then we have a term that to age 65. Uh, which is a pretty good policy if you take it out when you're young because that term goes to age 65. So that rate when you lock in at a young age will stay the same up to age 65. And now none of those build that cash value. If somebody's looking to use this as a, to get some cash at the end of it, cancel it and get some cash at the end of it. All the whole life policies will build a cash value. We have a traditional whole life, which you're paying a premium on for your whole life. It is, again, cheaper the younger you take it out. The one I like the most is the whole life 20 pay, where you're only paying on the policy for 20 years. Uh, Once the policy is paid up after 20 years, it's still your policy. The cash value continues to grow, and you still have the full benefit of that face value, what you took out when you purchased the policy. Along the same line, we have one that is a whole life paid up at age 65. If you take it out when you're 40, it's basically a 25-year pay policy. So it's, it works the same way as a 20-year pay, but it can't, you can stretch the payments out a little longer. But if you took it out after age 45, it would actually be condensing it rather than extending it. 
And then the last whole life policy we have is a single pay whole life. And that's a, not very popular because somebody, in order to get a large amount of coverage, it would be making one premium payment for that coverage. But it's there if somebody came into a large sum of money and wanted to purchase some insurance with it. You can borrow against the cash value of the policy and cash it out at some point if you needed to. All right. Beyond just the life insurance policies, there's a, a another couple of potential benefits that we offer there and that, that I think we should discuss. And let's talk about the retirement savings plan a little bit. And you may want to get into how it began as far as the, the one that applies to CCAs and so just talk to us about that. I guess these, you know, allows a lot of our members the opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't have to begin saving for retirement, you know, very, very early on in their career. All right. So the retirement savings plans we have, they're all structured pretty much the same. But with the introduction of CCAs after the DOS award in 2013, Myra Warren, my predecessor as director of life insurance, we branded one as the CCA retirement savings plan. And with the CCA Retirement Savings Plan, what we decided to do was to allow them to roll over their money in the CCA IRA into the TSP if they took out the traditional IRA. And only the traditional IRA can be rolled over this way. And that's because of IRS regulations. That's not something that uh, we chose to do. But all of our retirement savings plans are offered as a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or a non-qualified deferred annuity. And we all have to follow the IRS regulations, and there are certain contribution limits to the Roth and to the traditional, and they don't apply to the non-qualified. Again, that's with IRS regulations and whatnot. We have to keep up with all that. Gotcha. So if you're uh, certainly someone that's that's been recently hired or, uh, you know, you're a CCA and it's you're in a place where it may be, you know, a little while before you convert to uh, to career employment, then uh, that definitely may be something that you want to look into. I guess the last product that we should talk about that's out there that's available that might be of interest to some of our members is the Hospital Plus benefit that we offer. So tell us about Hospital Plus. Well, Hospital Plus will pay you cash similar to the disability policy if you are confined to a hospital for 24 hours. And what you can cover yourself, you can cover your entire family. Qualifying children will be covered at 60% of the face value of the Hospital Plus plan. You can cover yourself for up to $100 a day. The benefits could run for up to a year. So you can get $100 a day for 365 days if you spent that long in a hospital for one event. Unfortunately, we get a lot of questions about this. It does not cover time spent in a skilled nursing facility, only in a hospital. A lot of hospitals, unfortunately, are sending people to skilled nursing facilities these days as far as uh, you know, rehab facilities or whatnot. They would not be covered just the time spent in the hospital. Gotcha. All right. So we've talked about a lot of the different products that are out there. So if our listeners want to find more information and obviously the website's out there and, uh, but, but how, how should they do that? Where can they find information? And if they have questions beyond the stuff that's available to them publicly and what's the best way to advise our members that might be interested in MBA to go about finding more information. So there's a few ways to call the MBA. Our lines are open from 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 
we have two numbers you can call. We have a toll-free number that's open only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's 800-424-5184. Or you can call Monday through Friday at 202-638-4318. But there is a lot of information on our website, nalc.org backslash MBA. It has all the brochures and everything you need to know. Any questions, just call one of the those two numbers and one of our people will be happy to assist you. Yeah, and before we get to the, the last thing, speaking of the people, I, I think we should mention that uh, we've got a number of employees that work down at MBA from professionals as far as administrators and folks that work in IT down there, obviously folks that handle the financial side of it. And then, you know, a lot of folks that work there that are bargaining unit employees that, you know, have their own union that are represented by the Office Professional Employees International Union, OPIU, Local 2. Is there a local here? Those people do a, do a great job. And I can guarantee you that if you call the Mutual Benefit Association, you'll, you'll get somebody on the phone that, uh, is more than willing and, and able to assist you. So Jim, someone has listened to this podcast, they go check out the information, they make a phone call and, and they're ready to purchase one of these products. How do they do that? Well, it's pretty simple, really. If you didn't have any questions and you just went to the website, you could pull up the application right on the website, print it out, fill it out, mail it right into us and we'll take care of the rest. If you did happen to call some call us, you had some questions, uh, we can certainly mail you a copy of the uh, application and you can fill it out and just send it back to us. Looking to the future, we're trying to move this into more of an electronic way of doing things, uh, but everything has a price tag. So we'll, we'll, we're trying to get there. And I know, Jim, there's, as far as the applications, this might be worth mentioning just to tell people to look out for certain states have different requirements. So people should pay it based on where they live. Be sure they have the right application, correct? Yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, there are several states out there that their insurance law is slightly different. And like I mentioned earlier, we have to comply with all states' insurance laws where we sell insurance. So there is some different language on some of the applications, the policies themselves, the coverage is the same, but in order to comply with the different state laws, especially, I think it's Florida, South Dakota, there's a, there, there's a few that just are, are different. So if you're in some of those states, just take a look at the website and you'll, you'll see the different states listed. Yeah, and it's pretty right there at the top of the application. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Well, Jim, really appreciate you uh, taking some time to join us on the podcast. I know our members will hopefully be interested in hearing about the MBA, which is just another benefit that you know we as a union try to offer as much as we possibly can, you know, to our members. So, any final words or parting words for the listeners out there? Yeah, I just would encourage everybody to take a look at our products. Do your homework. We're here for your benefit. We're not making a profit off of you. All our premiums goes right goes right back into building policies and benefits for letter carriers. This is what we do. This is why we're here. We're your insurance company. We're owned by our members. So take advantage of it. Yeah, really good point. You know, 
when we uh, look at all the other places we can buy things like life insurance, I promise you those big companies out there are into making a profit. And that's that's not what we are here for. It's really here to serve our members. All right. Well, Jim, thanks again for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of our listeners reach out and express some interest and find something with the Mutual Benefit Association that works for them. Right, now let's go to the Ask the Mailbag segment. Our first question comes from Andrea in Branch 5. That's out in Nebraska. She's a CCA that's about to be converted. Congratulations. She wants to know the difference between relative standing and seniority and how they transfer over. Yeah, good question, uh, Andrea. So th- there are similarities and differences. Is, and I think in order to um, really understand the differences, it's important to talk just to briefly about the history. Um, so seniority, everyone I think knows what seniority is. It's um, a calculation that's done when someone starts and there's so much that we do based on seniority, you know, bidding on jobs and leave and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Relative standing came about in 2013 with the uh, DOS award and with the creation of CCAs. And it's actually a term that is derived from the section of our national agreement, Article 41, Section 2B, that's about seniority. And the reason it has a different name than seniority is because it applies to CCAs and there are things, we couldn't use the term seniority because there are things that seniority impacts the relative standing doesn't. For example, job bidding. You know, if you're a full-time carrier, then you have the ability to bid on jobs. If you're a non-career employee or or even a part-time career employee like a PTF, you don't have that ability. But the reason relative standing was established, we had never had this before with any of the other non-career classifications like transitional employees or casuals that we had before. It's because CCAs have certain contractual rights that those previous non-career employees did not have. And we needed some form of seniority that we call relative standing in order to make some determinations there. So it's used for a number of things. Number one, if you choose to get a, you know, opt on a hold down, a temporarily vacant assignment, and two people both opt for that hold down, then relative standing, whoever has the most relative standing is you, you know, is the person that that gets the hold down. A lot of our branches have negotiated provisions into their local agreement, their local memorandum of understanding about using annual leave CCAs and relative standing is often used to determine, you know, who gets first choice of leave. Maybe most importantly, um, relative standing is used to determine the order in which CCAs convert to career status. So once someone starts as a non-career employee, their relative standing is established and we maintain a roster and whoever, when the opportunity comes for someone to be converted to career status, whoever is the highest on that list in relative standing is the first person that's given that opportunity to convert. So those are the main sort of reasons that that it was created. As far as after you convert, your seniority is established on the day that you convert. So if you're the only one in your installation that converts on a particular Saturday, because these things always happen on the, the first day of a pay period, which would be a Saturday, that's your seniority date as a career employee, and you would 
just slide in at the bottom of the, the seniority roster. If multiple CCAs in an installation convert on the same day, both or however many there are, they have the same seniority date, but relative standing is utilized, your relative standing is a CCA, to determine which is senior and what the order will be. So for example, let's say three CCAs in installation A convert all on the same day. They all have the same seniority date, but to determine where they go on the seniority roster, we would simply look at what their relative standing is as a CCA. So that's how it's used. I'm, I think that was the main point of your question. Um, maybe this is a little longer answer than what you were asking for, but those are the main ways in which relative standing is used. And once you convert, once your seniority you know, is established, using that relative standing as a tiebreaker if necessary, then all the normal seniority rules will apply. Our next question comes from Billy in New York. He wants to have a clarification about our SNDC podcast episode. Wants to know if multiple branches go into an SNDC, does he get to keep his steward from his branch? Possibly. And honestly, most of the time, the answer is yes. However, there's a process we go through. I know on that episode, Doug uh, Lape was on with us and he talked in detail about the process we go through internally as far as collecting information and, and communicating with the branches and the, the NBA offices. So when multiple units are moved into an SNDC and it's considered a single installation and it involves more than one branch, then I, as the NALC president, have to make a decision uh, as to the representation of those members. This is not always the case. More often than not, uh, I have decided to allow those members to remain members of their own branch, even even though, you know, whatever their original branch was. The one thing that can kind of complicate it as far as the specific question about do you get to keep your steward is when we have multiple units move into an SNDC, sometimes we have multiple branches and I make a decision as to, you know, this branch will will represent these members and this branch will represent that member. We still, in Article 17 of our agreement, have a formula for the number of stewards that we can have based on the number of letter carriers that we have in that particular unit. So in some cases, the formula for the stewards can dictate that you, you may have, if you have three different branches moving in, each, all three had their own steward, but now the formula says you can only have two stewards, then it is a possibility that one of those stewards may be not the primary steward anymore. But that's the kind of stuff that when I have to make those decisions, we of course communicate that in writing by a letter that lays out everything to the branch presidents. And uh, whenever that's an impact, then uh, we'll make a determination as to which branch will certify the stewards and, and all that stuff. So as long as it's what's in the best interest of the members and their representation, as I said, not all the time, but most of the time, I typically try to let the folks that come from a certain branch maintain their identity, you know, unless there's a strong feeling, you know, among the members or and the leadership there that they want to go to another branch. So it's kind of a, a general question that's really based on the specifics of every scenario, but that is kind of the way we approach it and, and what we try to do. So I will say this, though. I think Billy was asked the question. To ask that question, that means you have a good steward. So you know, you're involved in an SNDC 
and you got a good steward, uh, I can tell you that the, the number one priority is always the representation of the members, and, and we'll do what we can to ensure that that good steward continues to be there to represent your members. Our final question of this segment is from John B. from Branch 214 in San Francisco. He wants to know about our last podcast episode about politics and legislation, and he wants to know about the new session that will be coming up after the new year. Do our bills go uh, stay or are they, do they change and go back to zero? Yeah, good question. And I think th- this has popped up some because when you look at one of the pieces of legislation that Corey and I talked about for a pretty extended period of time, that's a priority of ours, the Social Security Fairness Act. You know, each bill that's introduced and, and resolution is given a number in every Congress. And a Congress runs from the time those people are sworn in, in this case, that was back in January of twenty of this year, 2023, for a two-year period. So the Congress continues uh, until the next Congress is sworn in. So we had an election in 2022 that determines who the people are. They're, at least in the House, in the Senate, it's, you know, six-year term. So you only have a third of the Senate every two years that uh, can potentially can potentially change. But the bill number for Social Security Fairness, H.R. 82, was the same in the last Congress as it is in this Congress. So that's prompted this question to come up quite a bit. That is just purely coincidence. Um, it's a good coincidence because it's, you know, maintains its identity. But when legislation is introduced in a particular Congress, it remains active uh, unless passed, of course, for the duration of that Congress. So the bills that like H.R. 82 that we have right now, the Social Security Fairness Act will remain until the end of 2024 um, and, and actually into early 2025 when the Congress is sworn in as a result of the election that will happen next fall. So bills that are out there that do not pass or do not get voted on, they remain until the end of the Congress. Once a new Congress is sworn in, the slate is wiped clean, so to speak, and new bills have to be introduced. Now, as we did with postal reform for so many years, it, it would not go for a vote. So it would kind of die on the vine, so to speak, at the end of the Congress, but then we would have it reintroduced. And if indeed that turns out to be the case with any of our priority legislation, uh, I can promise you once a new Congress comes in, just as we have in the past, we will do our best to get those pieces of legislation reintroduced and work toward passage of them. So that was our Ask the Mailbag segment. If you have a question that you want answered, please email it in at social at nalc.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident Podcast. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode, and please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. If you have any questions to submit or have feedback about the podcast, Again, email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side and may your union have your back. Thanks for listening. See you next week.